Well, church family, I hope you enjoyed your extra hour of sleep. Some of you didn't get it because you were on the high of celebrating the Astros last night. Uh, and for all of us poor Rangers fans, we just wept wishing that Nelson Cruz had made the same catch in game six uh, that the Astros did the other night. So, no, uh, church family, glad you're here this morning. Uh, and as we come to the text this morning, we're going to work our way slowly through. Uh, many of you have heard of the Houston Astros, but you probably haven't heard of Baruch Spinoza. Just by raising hands, anybody know who Baruch Spinoza is? Yeah, there's a couple people. The people who, act, who like philosophy and the history of that know, but uh, that'd be me. Uh, Baruch Spinoza was a 17th century Jewish atheist. Uh, and if you study the history of, of philosophy, big ideas, he's one of the harshest critics historically of Christianity. And he was quoted as saying this. He said, I have often wondered that persons who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, and charity to all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. Now, he was obviously living at a time when he saw an abuse of uh, what happens when you have a church-state government. He saw the, the ways and the literal physical violence that would take place between those countries that were Catholic or those countries that were Lutheran or those countries that were the Church of England. He, he saw some things that certainly are different than our day, but, but he asked the same question and, and levels a, a criticism that goes right along with things we hear today. What's wrong with the church? Why, why is the church so bad? As people begin to process the wounds that they have received at the hands of church folk, as people uh, flock out of the church, as they deal with the hurts and pains of pastors who lead and rule not like shepherds but dictators, and all of a sudden we begin to hear these kind of questions, well, if, if, if the church is really the bride of Christ, if Jesus is really true, why is his church so messed up? And in fact, we live in a day and age where it is now trendy for someone to deconstruct their faith and maybe they remain a believer but they reject all forms of the local church or maybe they are not a believer but they use it as an excuse to reject all forms of Christ. Church family, this is not separated. If you just scroll through, uh, if you just hop on your Instagram or the Instagram of your child or grandchild and throw through the search page, you'll find video after video after video of things like this. What do you do with this reality? What do you do with the fact that sometimes God's people don't look at all like God's people? And the passage that we come to in James today that we're going to take our time the next several weeks working through is part of the answer. Because you're going to find in Scripture that it is possible for God's people to live in such a way as to not reflect their Lord. And so I invite you, church family, if you've got your Bibles, to turn with me to James chapter 4. 
James chapter four. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, which we'd love for you to do. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, please take that home afterward as our gift to you. You'll find the, the page numbers up on the screen. And as we come to this passage, remember, remember just where we've been. We came into chapter three and, and, and James talks about the power of the tongue. It can be a power for good, a power to change, but an untamed or an unwise tongue is a ferocious fire for damage. And then he comes out of that and he talks about wisdom from above and that wisdom from above is not seen and it's, or it is seen in action, but not in jealousy or selfish ambition, but it's pure, it's peaceable and that this, this wisdom would lead a community of believers not into a place of selfish ambition, but of peace. And then we come to chapter four, having talked about that peace, and we find that that peace isn't present among these believers. And so we're going to do, this is, this is by far one of the harshest call-outs of sin in Scripture from the believing community, from Christians. So we're going to work our way through it. We're going, to, we're going to really be in these 12 verses for the next three weeks. So here we go. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it is not the source, your pleasures, your desires that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You en you're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so you may spend it on your own pleasures. It says, what is the source? He's writing to the, these believers and he says, hey, there are quarrels and conflicts among you. What's the source? Where are they coming from? Where are they coming out of these quarrels and conflicts? Words, quarrels meaning uh, a battle, open hostility, conflicts, an open clash between two opposing groups. And when both of those terms are put together, it nearly always refers to physical violence, to actual war. So leads to the question, is that, is that what James is addressing here? Is he writing a group of believers that, that literally they come to physical blows when they meet with one another? Well, it's possible at the time that he's writing, the, uh, those, who are, those who are Jews are, are occupied by the Roman Empire. There is a movement known as the Zealot Movement, which is certainly gaining, gaining steam in the next 20 to 30 years after James is written, it will build to a, held, uh, build to a head where there is open, uh, open uh, hostility and fighting back against the Roman Empire. It will lead to the, ultimately the destruction of Jerusalem. It's possible that James is writing and saying, hey, as, as you as believers are facing this harsh, this hostile, this unjust world that you are living in, don't you move. What is the source of this physical violence among you? It's possible. But if we dig down, it's not probably primary. Even in the English language, we use things like fight, war, battle to refer to other things than just physical bloodshed. And that was, that was a battle on the football field Friday night. Obviously, there was no physical fighting. But we use those words in various ways. We use those words. Man, did you hear the war of words exchanged between those politicians? We use those words in, in all different ways. And in fact, as we look throughout the book of James, if you look down at verse 11, it says, do not speak against one another. By the time you get through this passage to uh, verse 11, 
The primary application is verbal. So what's really going on here? He says, hey, you believers, I know it's present among you. What is the source? We're no longer talking about something that may or may not be present. He's addressing something that is really going on in the life of these churches. Is what is the source of these, these conflicts, these quarrels? What is the source of you coming after each other verbally? What, where is this coming from? So is, it, is it coming from all of the pressures externally around you? Is it coming because you're living in a hostile culture? Is it, is it coming because you're putting, in, you're putting in 60 hours of work, you're getting paid for 20 hours unjustly and it's just building to the head and you're just getting, is it all these external things? No, no. He says, is it not? By the way, that's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. So let me tell you where it's coming from. The reason you're having these, these things is because your pleasures, your desires are waging war in your members. Your pleasures, now that word technically is neutral. It's a word that simply means desire, to have a desire that you want to gratify. And depending on context, the connotation can either be positive or negative, but that word when used in scripture, it's not used often, but when it's used, it's always in the negative. It speaks of a self-centered desire. It speaks of a desire that I will seek to gratify, that I will seek to bring the feeling to gratify it by whatever means I need to, no matter what the cost, no matter what it takes, no matter what the outcome. It speaks to an unsanctified carnality. It is a selfish pleasure that stands opposed to the work of God and the Holy Spirit. And it says these desires that are in you, these desires, they are, and he uses the term, waging war. Now for a moment you can go, wow, and you see later on he's gonna use the term you, you, you covet and, and, and you don't get, so, so you murder. Wow, this is intense language. And he's not using intense language because he's trying to be, uh, he's trying to use hyperbole or because there's no other way to say it, but what he's doing is he's expressing that when the body of Christ lives in a state, when believers live in a state where we are marked by quarreling, when we are marked by conflict, when we are marked by the pursuit and fulfillment of our own desires, even if it means coming after each other, when we are marked by that, there is no other way to rightfully describe the absolute appalling reality of what is going on. Your desires, they're, they're waging war in your members, both that it refers to sided, it means internally inside, it, there's this war raging as you, as you have these desires. And by the way, he, though the desires, there's a negative connotation, the negative connotation is my self-centered pursuit of the desires. He didn't provide a list of vices of these desires are good or these desires are bad. What he's drawing attention to, church family, is the fact that we have desires and we are inclined to selfishly pursue the satisfaction of those desires. And when we are all in on that, there is a war that's raging internally and there is a war waging war among your members. It doesn't just refer internally but refers externally to how we relate to one another. And if we're honest, as we look in there, the fact that he doesn't name something specific should directly pierce and target all our hearts. It'd be a lot easier, you see, if he came and he said, some of, some of you have desires. 
Some of you have, some of you have desires for glory and that's driving you. Or some of you have these, these immoral desires or some of you, and if he gave some list, it'd be possible for maybe some of us to sit back and go, ooh, let me go, no, nope, 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 nope. Oh, I'm good, I'm good. But he didn't say that. He leaves it broad, church family. He leaves it broad because there is not a one of us in this room who does not in some way, shape, form, or fashion have to battle the temptation to selfishly fulfill whatever desires, good, bad, right, wrong, neutral, or pick a side that spring up within us. We all face that temptation. And so he goes further. He says, this is the reason these quarrels and conflicts, the reason this battle is waging amongst you is because you've got these desires. And in these desires, it says, you luster. You are, you are constantly lusting. You are constantly craving something that you don't have. You are constantly lusting, yet you, you are not having. You do not have. You want something. This desire produces something. You want, you don't get it, so what do you do? It says, so you are committing murder. Now, wait a minute. This may seem obvious to some, but, but because if you ever study this passage, they go, they, they, there's, all the scholars go into it. Is he talking about are they actually murdering each other? Well, probably not, because that's a pretty serious crime that would involve uh, governing officials, and he doesn't seem to have further rebuke. So what is he talking about when he says, you're committing murder? You, you, you want things, you desire things, you're not getting them, so you commit murder. Well, think back to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, church family. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard the ancients say, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. It says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, name calling, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. Whoever says, you fool, false accusation, slander, you shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery of, fire of hell. All of a sudden, Jesus redefines what actually murder is. Jesus all of a sudden steps on and says, you've heard it, and you go, I've never committed murder. I've never taken the life of someone else. Yes, but if you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, if you are openly hostile towards your brother or sister, if you are, if you are slandering them, if you are using names to come down on them, if that is you, then you are guilty of murder. That's the context for what James writes here, 1 John chapter 3 puts it this way, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He is speaking to a hostility that rises up where, where I see something I want, so I, I go after, I, I engage in this relentless pursuit after it, and I never get it, and so what springs up inside of me is to take that out on others. Take it out on others, there, there is a murderous intent, and before you go, well wait, that's, that's, really, that's really extreme. Is Jesus being extravagant, or is, was John being extravagant when he says this? No, church family, understand. It's not scripture which exaggerates the importance of quarrels, it's us who diminish how awful those quarrels really are. 
That's why if we're honest, when these kind of quarrels and conflicts where all of a sudden our desires that we want when we come to the body of Christ, or maybe, maybe it's inside of our, our homes, the Christian home, when all of a sudden we have these desires that we seek with all our passion to fulfill in a, in a self-centered way, when all of those sudden those things boil up and we are now in open conflict, not because truth is in question, not because we are standing fighting for, for souls for eternity, but because we didn't get what we want, how we wanted it, when we wanted it. The wounds that are produced inside of the body of Christ, in my opinion, are the hardest wounds to heal from in this life. It is harder for me personally to heal from some of the wounds and shots I have taken from brothers in Christ than it is at times to process the murder of my grandmother. Why? Because a lost man did what a lost man can only do. I'm not saying that to minimize it, but when people who know Jesus act like they don't, those wounds, church, family, pierce, and in that way, there is a murder of spirit that takes place. It says not only that, it says you are envious you have this bitter resentment. You see someone else who has something you don't have and, and you want it. And so, it, 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 and, but, but you lack the ability, the way that the phrasing, it doesn't come out well in English, but you, you lack the actual ability to go after and get what it is you want. And so what do you do? You fight and quarrel. What do you do? You don't, you don't think to deal with that desire. You don't think, we'll see here in a second, to, to, to look to God. No, you fight and you quarrel. All of a sudden, we watch this reality, church family, that these desires, when we pursue after them in a self-centered way, they will bring brokenness into relationships with each other. You murder, you fight, you quarrel. And so church family, how, how do we do this? Because we've got to recognize, if we're going to try to apply this, we've got to recognize where we do this. Where are our quarrels and conflicts? Well, think about in our home. Can't believe my wife didn't meet my expectations today. How dare she disappoint my desire? Came home from the job. There was no dinner on the table. The kids were running around like crazy. It's loud. What on earth is she doing all day? Just leave that there. How dare you infringe on my boundaries? I'm the man. My job's the lawn. It's your job to do the dishes and take out the trash and da 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 da, da inside the house. Or think about siblings. I want this thing. I have this desire. And you know what? My sibling is getting in the way of, of taking that. Kids, my, my sibling, I, I wanted to have the TV from this time to this time, and you got in the way of that, so I'm going to go to literal blows for some of the kids in the room. Think about how inside of our homes, and maybe it's not in the context of a spouse and children. Maybe it's with a roommate. Think about how a misspoken word, we allow it to fester and embitter our souls. How, how dare you say that to me? Or how dare you not listen to everything that I have to say? Or da, 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 on down the line because we've got these desires that we are seeking fulfillment in other people. Think about how these come out amongst the world, whether it be at the school or, uh, or, or in a workplace. 
You have this desire, this desire to achieve this end and and you are overlooked and it's denied and now you feel slighted and you may have really been slighted. But it's a fine line to go from rightfully being slighted to wrongfully all of a sudden in my selfishness taking it out that my desire was not fulfilled. There's lots of ways we do this, church family. Specifically in the context, it's, it's talking primarily about us as a church. We can fight and quarrel over secondary theological issues, not things that are, that are uh, this is the way it is and we, and we know the way it is, thus saith the Lord, but secondary things. It's why Paul uses the same term for quarrels in Titus 3.9. He says to Titus, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worse, worthless. Yet you can go into churches that believe and hold the truth and all of a sudden if you hold hold this viewpoint of the end times versus this viewpoint of the end times, both of which, by the way, would fall under the umbrella of Jesus is coming back. So we're not talking heresy. I can't believe you're a rapture guy. I'm a non-rapture guy. How dare you? Here's the, here's the real honest truth. You want my cards on the table? Every time I become real convinced of one way, then I study some other scripture that really pulls you the other way. And here's what I know. Jesus is coming back. I'd love for there to be a rapture, but I'm going to prepare to stand for him regardless of what it is because his grace is sufficient. Okay, bum, done. <laughs> Yet we've had churches that have split over things like that. Secondary theological issues, stylistic preferences. I'll always use the example of music because we seem to get so fired up about it. I came to church and I want to sing my songs that elicit my heart my way because that's how to worship God. Wait a minute. So God's worship is based on my preference? If I can't worship God to a song that's true regardless of style, the problem's not with the song, the problem's with my heart. Yet churches split generationally all the time because of a stubborn refusal over what we desire stylistically, whether it be being music or what time the service is or how we do small groups. Is it Sunday school? Is it home groups during the week? Or over dumb things like the water, the, the water fountain and the carpet color. And by the way, you go, well, what's that from, Wes? Because I actually know stories of churches that have split over stuff like that. Maybe it's over personal memories. This, this is how we experienced God moving when we were growing up. And, and so all of a sudden to think about, about something new, something different, and, to, and that, that would be better effective at reaching today's people that falls fully inside of, of biblical bounds. No, we can't do that because, listen, if VBS is effective, VBS, great. If sports camp, sports camp, great. If a mission trip camp, great. I got news for you, none of them were in the early church. But man, we can get heated over it, church family. We can get heated. We can bring our personal beefs. Yeah, that person, they always look at me funny. I'm not dare going into that small group. Not only will I not go into that small group, but I'll go to this small group, and I'll tell them why I wouldn't go to that small group, because that person looks at me funny. (laughs) And then all this, well, I can't believe that person looked. And all of a sudden... We're sitting in staff meeting, praying, thinking, oh man, it's a great week at church. And, hey, I got this email. This, there's this whole conflict between this group and this group, all because this, and you get down to the root of it, somebody looked at somebody funny. And the truth is they weren't looking at the other person funny. They just had a twitch in their eye. 
We drag all these things in, church family, and if we don't recognize the ways in which we can allow our desires when we come to be apart, when we gather as a church family, when we're, when we're apart and we're taking it, if it's always about me, what am I getting? How is this church feeding me? My desires, how is it fulfilling? Listen, I've got news for you. You have desires, brothers and sisters, that this church will never be able to fulfill because they can only be fulfilled by Christ. And because they're fulfilled in Christ, there is the ability to come together as a body and to use our gifts to what? Not take for myself, but serve one another. But if our mindset is built so much like our culture, which is all about me, myself, I, how do I look, how do I get, how do I operate, what can I take, we will fight and we will quarrel. And we need to understand the deep damage when all of a sudden in our actions and especially our words, we start to engage. Listen to how one of the... Uh, one of the Jewish works written in between the Old and New Testament, it's, it's, listen to this, the blow of a whip raises a welt, but the blow of the tongue crushes the bones. Many have fallen by the edge of the sword, but not near as many as have fallen because of the tongue. The damage that our quarrels do are massive. The world watches and laughs. We have people who are hurting, who are broken. And that goes for, for you sitting in the congregation. It goes for me as the pastor at Preaching the Word. It goes for all of us as children of God who make up the local body of Christ. Now listen, this is not saying in quarrels and conflicts that you can't have disagreement. It's okay to say, man, that was a great hymn. I really wish we had sang this song. It's just a little more my preference. There's nothing wrong with that. We've all got preferences, opinions. It's okay to say, hey, I, you know, here's the deal. I, you know, I, I, really, I, really wish, I really wish we did worship first and then Sunday school. I just, you know, I'm just, great. This is not saying there can't be disagreements. Unity does not mean uniformity of thought on everything. Certainly uniformity of thought on the true things, but God has created a multitude of preference of styles of this and that and expression. It doesn't mean that there's not disagreement. It does mean, going back to last week, that we need that wisdom from above which is pure and peaceable to navigate any disagreement with the meekness of Christ. So that disagreement doesn't lead to disunity. Well, how do we get there? Well, James told us in chapter 1, if you lack wisdom, because you do lack wisdom, pray. Ah, but quarrels and conflicts don't just bring brokenness between us. They bring brokenness in our relationship with the Lord. Look back at the text with me, verse 3. He says, you can't get anything, and so you're, you're engaging in this horrible behavior. He says, you ask and do not, uh, or you do not have. He says, you're lacking because you do not ask. And those are in the present tense, meaning there's, there's not this persistence in your prayer life. Part of the reason you've got desires that are being unmet is because you refuse to ask God, who is the good giver, to meet the need. You refuse to ask him to meet the need. So there's a, a lack of persistence. And in contrast to the way Jesus taught us to pray, 
Ask, seek, and, and knock, and we go, okay, ask, right? No, no, the Greek is a present tense, meaning keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. And then Jesus tells in Luke 18 the parable of the persistent widow as a parable for prayer where he says, look, there's this widow in this city, there's a judge. The judge is not a moral judge, he's just in it for himself. There's a widow who's got this issue and every day she goes and gets on the judge to give an answer to her issue and the judge finally goes and I don't, I don't fear God, I don't have any moral respect, but this woman is nagging me so much, I'm just gonna give her what she wants. That, by the way, that is the Greek. This woman is nagging me so much. That is. And Jesus says, how much more your heavenly Father who actually has a care, a concern. See, some of us, the fact that there are desires in our lives that have not been met, there, there, are, these, there are these passions, these, these things in our life that may have not been met, it's because we've never stopped and actually persisted in prayer to ask the Lord, Lord, meet this. Here, here's, here's my desire. We've never come before the Lord honestly and laid that desire, that desire for community, that desire for a spouse, that desire for uh, clarity and calling, that desire for fill in the blank. We've never just honestly come before the Lord and persisted in prayer and laid them before Him. Even though it says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that God's will for our lives is to pray without ceasing. We don't ask, and why, why don't we ask, church family? Well, maybe it's because we doubt. Ah, I'd take this desire. I've got this desire to, single person, I've got this desire for marriage. God's word says it's good, but I just, uh, you know, God's got, God, God's got, God's got inflation and, and World War III and all that kind of stuff on his plate. He doesn't really have time for this. Well, this, this is just, this just seems kind of, kind of petty. God, God, God does, does God really care? Some of the reasons time we don't ask church family because we doubt. We really don't think he cares. We really don't think he hears, which is a denial of everything you find in scripture. Some of us, it's because of pride. We think, hey, you know what? I got this. I got this. I, I can find a way to fulfill this desire. God doesn't need to help out with finding a spouse. I, I got it. I'll go find it. I got these apps. I got this app. I got these friends. I got this. I got it. Pride. We think we can do it by our own abilities. And by the way, pride can be something we're aware of. We can also be unaware of the fact that we're being prideful. Let me tell you how this is. We're going after trying to fill this desire and we don't even realize we're not even bringing it to the Lord. Because somewhere deep down, we think we can take care of it. Apathy. For some of us, we don't pray because flat out we're just too busy, too tired, too fill in the blank. We're just apathetic and we just don't pray. Fear. If we're honest, some of us are afraid to take those desires. We're afraid to take those things before God. We're, we're afraid to take some of those deep-seated needs and desires before God because what if God doesn't answer how we want it answered? We're afraid. And honestly, the truth is all four of those reasons can perfectly tie together. Likely for many of us, their desires we don't ever bring before the Lord because there's a combination of all four in our lives. We're afraid, and we're afraid if God doesn't answer how I will, then all of a sudden this is what it's going to mean. That's going to lead us to doubt. 
and to doubt his character, to doubt his goodness, that's going to lead us to pride. Well, if God doesn't care, I'm going to take care of it. And then we're going to be so busy taking care of all of our stuff, so self-centered, focused on us, that we're going to be apathetic, too busy, too full, too this, too that. So some of you, you don't have because you don't ask. You don't have that nearness to the Lord you desire because you're not ever asking the Lord to bring you near. You don't have that sense of clarity and calling because you don't ever ask the Lord for that sense of clarity and calling. You don't, you don't ever have peace and wisdom in your home amongst the world or in the body of Christ because you don't ever ask. You don't ever have moments to share the gospel. You don't ever ask. Some. But there's also some who are asking. Look what he says, verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. He says, there's some of you, you are actually asking, but the reason you're not receiving, the reason that God's God's not giving what you're asking for is because you have a wrong motive behind your asking. Your asking is not driven by a conformity to his word, your asking is not driven because you are Psalm 37 verse four, delighting yourself in the Lord. You're asking because you're delighting yourself in yourself and it's your pleasure that drives your prayer life, not his. Says you're asking and do not receive. And by the way, notice it says you do not receive, not that God doesn't hear. If you're a child of God, church family, God hears. He hears. But God is also clear that there's requests he will respond to and there's requests he won't answer in the way that we ask. Here it tells us that sometimes the reason he doesn't answer the way we ask is because there is a manner of praying that's driven by our pleasure rather than his prayer. There's a manner of praying where prayer ceases to be a weapon to go to battle for his glory and and, and with each other, but a magic eight ball for us to shake and think we can get what we want. And by the way, to pray in this way doesn't mean we're praying for sinful things. It can be praying for good things, but good things that we want for wrong motives. Let me give you an example. Uh, Having worked with a lot of young people, I love the way that words change over time, right? Uh, Once upon a time, we called it, I need fellowship, but then fellowship got too old, so the younger generation came in and said, I need community and we just replace fellowship with community. And once that younger, the current younger generation gets too old, we'll replace it with some other word and it'll keep on going down. But having worked with a lot of students, there's always this, ah, I just, I want community, I want community, I want I'm praying, especially when they graduate college, move to a new place, and now they're in the full grown up world. I gotta find community, how is it this? And then all of a sudden they bounce from this church to that church and they just give up because they can't find the community they want. And God, you're not answering for community. Well, there's nothing wrong with desiring biblical community. It's in Scripture. God wants us to be part of a local church where there's biblical community, biblical fellowship. But what if my longing for biblical community is is in a way that I can't see actually an idol 
because I just want people around me all the time that make me feel good, that, that make me, and it's actually keeping me from pressing in to the Lord when all throughout scripture, God takes his people into places of wilderness, into places of loneliness, where he breaks them of that idolatry so that they can actually be deeper and more in love with him so that they can relate more with him so that then when he drops them back into community, that community's not all about them. We can pray things with wrong motives. And self-centeredness, to self-centeredly seek our desires, church family, it will rot our prayer life, which is vital in our relationship with God. As was his habit, Jesus got up, got alone, and what? Prayed. What did we look at with, with the armor of God the other night in spiritual warfare? We, we're to pray Prayer is vital and our prayer life will rot if it's driven by our own ambition. Listen to how scripture speaks of prayer. How should we pray? We should pray driven by the Holy Spirit of God for the will of God. Listen, 1 John 3, whatever we ask, we receive from God because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Now that's not saying that we, whatever we ask, God gives us because we earn it with our good behavior. No, if you and I, if we set ourselves to keep his commandments, you know what's gonna happen to our desires, our pleasures, and the thing we things we ask for? They're going to be conformed to his desires, to his pleasures, to where the reason that he's going to give what we ask for is because we're asking for what he desires to give. Says this later on in 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have before God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. See, church family, we're to be driven in our prayer life, not by our wish list, but by his word, his will, his heart. It says even when Jesus says to keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, and it will be answered, it will be, it will, you, you will find, and it will be open to you. He says this, he says, if you being earthly fathers know and delight to give good gifts to your children, how much more your father who's in heaven? And then he makes this statement, will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Even there in Jesus' command, the focus is not on, okay, whatever you want in life, you want to win that new Powerball lotto thing that's the biggest it's ever been, like $40 billion? Saw it on the news. You want to win that? Great. Ask, I'll give it to you. That's not what Scripture teaches about prayer. Now, Scripture does teach that you as a child of God, we have every right to come before the Lord and say, Lord, by the way, it'd be really great if you could just magically drop the Powerball in my lap. Or it'd be really great if you could have the Astros win the World Series. Or it'd be really great if you just put a million-dollar check. What's the guy that used to show up? A publisher's clearinghouse. Go, go in and fill all the, all the things that, that may pop up. By the way, just for the record, I'm not telling you to play the Powerball. That's just the story I saw this morning. So that's what's stuck in my mind, okay? Um, recommend you not do that. We can take, Lord, I, I, I desperately desire, I want to be married. We're called to take those kind of desires, to honestly lay them before him. But we're called in that to also pray for his wisdom. He teaches us to pray for God's will to be done. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray for daily provision, for forgiveness, for strength against temptation, for open doors to share the gospel. 
We're to lay our desires down before the Lord, desires that only Christ can fulfill. And so how do we navigate praying through personal things? Look, church family, if you're a child of God, boldly come before Jesus and pray. Ask honestly what is on your heart. It does us no good to go and and pray before God and not really spill everything that's on our heart as if he doesn't already know because he's living in our heart. He already sees it, he already knows. We've got to ask honestly, but then we've got to hold loosely. We've got to surrender that desire and trust that desire to his care. We've got to then submit to his word, to his will, to his timing, to his way. And it may be that process with certain desires, certain longings, whether you're single desiring to be married, whether you're married praying earnestly for kids but struggling with infertility, whether you are, we can go on down the line and pick all of the different aspects, things that really pierce to the core. And we're called to bring them honestly, called to hold them loosely because we don't know the plans the Lord has. I dreamed of going off to college. All I wanted to do was like my parents and grandparents, meet the love of my life. I didn't need the college experience, meet the love of my life, get married, do ministry, graduate, go off to Timbuktu, be a missionary. That's great, but you know what? I didn't know that part of God's plan for my life that he hadn't shown was that in his calling for ministry, he wasn't gonna steer me overseas, but after college, an opportunity was gonna open up to go be a youth pastor at a church that I am fully convinced part of the reason God did not bring Bethany and I across earlier, by the way, she almost went to DBU, so it could have happened, is because what I had the freedom and flexibility to do as a single youth pastor for those first three and a half years of youth ministry, I've never been able to repeat once I got married. We don't know what the Lord's plans are, so we, we bring it honestly, with tears, with agony, but we hold it loosely because we entrust it to Him who really is good, who knows what He's doing. We walk by the Spirit. We allow Him to transform our desires and prayer life. And you say, well, how do I know if I'm praying for things rightly? How do I know if I'm driven? Well, how do you respond when God says no or wait? Do we pout? Do we doubt? Do we complain? Or do we continue to honestly pour our heart out before the Lord? Do we humble ourselves, submit ourselves to God? That's the ultimate point of this passage, and we'll unpack that next week. We have desires, but God does not call us to self-centeredly seek after to fulfill our desires. That pursuit will lead to quarrels and fighting amongst us with horrific wounds and a horrible witness to the world. But there is a way of taking those desires, of realizing that ultimately they can only be fulfilled by the Lord, to go to the Lord, to allow Him to weed out ones that are wrong, to allow Him to refine the ones that are of Him, to entrust them to Him, to His timing, to His way, to His will. Now understand with prayer, if the Lord says no on something, or wait on something, it doesn't automatically mean what you're praying is selfish. 
James is just simply drawing that one of the reasons that sometimes we pray for things and there's no response of giving that thing is because our prayer is driven selfishly. So church family, we need to understand today the stakes are high. We as brothers and sisters in Christ, ambassadors of heaven, are the closest to Jesus that anyone in this world will see until judgment day. And if we are marked by a drive to fulfill our own selfish desires as a church, it'll be a war. And it'll be a war that when we look behind, it will be filled with battered and broken bodies of people we have trampled over in the pursuit of our own desires. Who are looking to us to shine His light. May we be a church, church family, that is not marked by quarreling and conflict, but is marked by prayer for His wisdom which produces peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Jesus, it is so easy for us to take good desires, bad desires, and to seek after them, to take them sometimes realizing it, sometimes not realizing it, and to just run off into self-centeredness. Lord, may we not be that kind of people. God, it may mean for some of us there's things we need to confess to you and say, Lord, here, here's where I've been. I've been all mad about this thing at home or I've been mad about this thing in the church or I've been mad about this thing out at the job or school or this or that and it is totally driven by a selfish pursuit of desire. And so, Lord, I, we, you and I, I need to return to right fellowship with you. Lord, may, may we deal with that, Lord. It may be that there's some things we've done verbally, actions against others in this room or not in this room that we need to go as you told us, Jesus, and go apologize for. Lord, it may be there are things that we are that are just eating us inside, that are waging war inside because we just are holding tightly onto them in fear and doubt and pride and apathy and we're not coming to you in prayer. And Father, there may be things in prayer that we're asking for, but we can't see the selfish aim behind it. Lord, only you know where each and every person in this room is at, each and every person watching online. Only you know. You're here. And so Holy Spirit, as you pierce our hearts, may we respond. Jesus, we look to you. It's in your name I pray.